Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's American Passages. I'm Dr. J. Today, I'll be reading from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Many years ago now, at my mother's funeral, I happened to have a conversation with my Uncle Dan, who at that time had retired from a successful career as an engineer for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. When he asked me what I was doing, and I told him I was teaching American literature at a public college, he told me that the most important book he ever read was Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. I should mention that my grandfather on my mother's side was a potato farmer in central Michigan who worked nights as a janitor in the local hospital to earn the money to send his children, as many as wanted to go, to college. All my aunts and uncles, as well as my mother, wound up leading successful, useful lives, but Uncle Dan was easily the most financially successful. So when he said Franklin's autobiography was the most important book in his life, I paid attention. Like my Uncle Dan, Benjamin Franklin was born into a large family of modest means. His father, a soap maker in colonial Boston, married twice and had 17 children. Benjamin was the 15th. His father only had money to send him to school for two years, and at age 12 he became an apprentice to an older brother who ran a printing shop and published a newspaper. When Benjamin was 16, his brother was jailed for three weeks for publishing material unflattering to the governor of Pennsylvania, and Benjamin took over both the printing shop and the newspaper for that time. Upon his brother's release, the two had a falling out, and at 17, Benjamin left Boston for Philadelphia. I'll take up the autobiography at the point of Franklin's first entry into Philadelphia, an episode that became a part of American folklore, as the autobiography became a part of every child's education in America. Franklin began his autobiography for his son, but was eventually encouraged to continue it for the good it could do all young people who wished to rise in the world. Success in the world, not just for himself, but for all who would work for it, was a lifelong concern for Franklin. He published a collection of sayings toward this end, which he titled The Way to Wealth. What he means by wealth, though, needs to be understood. It is hard for an empty sack to stand upright, he observed. What he wanted for his countrymen is that each could stand upright and do good in their community, not that some should become rich. Once he himself became wealthy enough to stand upright, he retired and devoted his life to all those areas of endeavor we remember him for, community leader, scientist, inventor, diplomat, statesman. His autobiography will disappoint those who go to it to learn about the great people and the great things he became associated with. Instead, we find those he had dealings with when he was getting started. In today's passage, we find two Mr. Bradfords and a Mr. Keemer all involved in the printing trade in Philadelphia, who have left no mark in history 
other than their appearance in the autobiography. But I've gotten a couple of steps ahead of myself. Let's first join Franklin as he tells of his first steps in Philadelphia after having helped row the boat he arrived in through the night. I have been the more particular in this description of my journey, and shall be so of my first entry into that city, that you may in your mind compare such unlikely beginnings with the figure I have since made there. I was in my working dress, my best clothes being to come around by sea. I was dirty from my journey. My pockets were stuffed out with shirts and stockings. I knew no soul, nor where to look for lodging. Fatigued with walking, rowing, and want of sleep, I was very hungry, and my whole stock of cash consisted of a Dutch dollar and about a shilling in copper coin, which I gave to the boatmen for my passage. At first they refused it on account of my having rowed, but I insisted on their taking it. A man is sometimes more generous when he has little money than when he has plenty, perhaps through fear of being thought to have but little. I walked toward the top of the street, gazing about till near Market Street, where I met a boy with bread. I have often made a meal of dry bread, and inquiring where he had bought it, I went immediately to the baker's he directed me to. I asked for biscuit, meaning such as we had in Boston, but that sort, it seems, was not made in Philadelphia. I then asked for a threepenny loaf, and was told they had none such. Not knowing the different pieces, nor the names of the different sorts of bread, I told him to give me three penny worth of any sort. He gave me accordingly three great puffy rolls. I was surprised at the quantity, but took it, and having no room in my pockets, walked off with a roll under each arm, and eating the other. Thus I went up Market Street as far as Fourth Street, passing by the door of Mr. Reed, my future wife's father, when she, standing at the door, saw me and thought I made, as I certainly did, a most awkward, ridiculous appearance. Then I turned and went down Chestnut Street and part of Walnut Street, eating my roll all the way, and coming round, found myself again at Market Street Wharf, near the boat I came in, to which I went for a draught of the river water, and being filled with one of my rolls, gave the other two to a woman and her child that came down the river in the boat with us, and were waiting to go farther. Thus refreshed, I walked again up the street, which by this time had many clean-dressed people in it, who were all walking the same way. I joined them, and thereby was led into the great meeting-house of the Quakers near the market. I sat down among them, and after looking round a while and hearing nothing said, being very drowsy through labor and want of rest the preceding night, I fell fast asleep and continued so till the meeting broke up, when someone was kind enough to rouse me. This was therefore the first house I was in or slept in in Philadelphia. I then walked down again toward the river, and looking in the faces of everyone, 
I met a young Quaker man whose countenance pleased me, and accosting him requested he would tell me where a stranger could get a lodging. We were near the sign of the Three Mariners. Here, says he, is a house where they receive strangers, but it is not a reputable one. If thee wilt walk with me, I'll show thee a better one. He conducted me to the crooked billet in Water Street. There I got a dinner, and while I was eating, several sly questions were asked me, as from my youth and appearance, I was suspected of being a runaway. After dinner, my sleepiness returned, and being shown to a bed, I lay down without undressing and slept till six in the evening, when I was called to supper. I went to bed again very early and slept soundly until next morning. Here Franklin begins his entry into the business world of Philadelphia. That next morning, I dressed myself as neat as I could and went to Andrew Bradford, the printers. I found in the shop the old man, his father, whom I had seen at New York and who, traveling on horseback, had got to Philadelphia before me. He introduced me to his son, who received me civilly, gave me a breakfast, but told me he did not at present want a hand, being lately supplied with one. But there was another printer in town, lately set up, one Keemer, who perhaps might employ me. If not, I should be welcome to lodge at his house, and he would give me a little work to do now and then, till fuller business should offer. At this point, when young Franklin arrives at Keemer's shop, accompanied by an older, already successful man, I would tell my students to highlight the whole paragraph. The old gentleman said he would go with me to the new printer, and when he found him, Neighbor, says Bradford, I have brought to see you a young man of your business. Perhaps you may want such a one. Keemer asked me a few questions, put a composing stick in my hand to see how I worked, and then said he would employ me soon, though he had just then nothing for me to do. And taking old Bradford, whom he had never seen before, to be one of the townspeople that had a good will for him, entered into a conversation on his present undertaking and prospects. While Bradford, not discovering that he was the other printer's father, on Keemer's saying he expected soon to get the greatest part of the business into his own hands, drew him on by artful questions and starting little doubts to explain all his views, which influence he relied on, and in what manner he intended to proceed. I, who stood by and heard all, saw immediately that one of them was a crafty old sophister and the other a true novice. Bradford left me with Keemer, who was greatly surprised when I told him who the old man was. Okay, why? Why should today's college students highlight this passage? First of all, Franklin can do something. Keemer puts a composing stick in his hand and sees how he can handle it. Franklin doesn't have a diploma. He has skill. Our society today too often gives young people the idea that all they need to thrive is a college diploma 
but not the learning that should go with it. If they want to go farther than their peers, however, it won't be enough to have the degree. They will need to have learned something, as much as they can, actually. Secondly, Keemer asks Franklin a few questions. Franklin needed to be able to speak and speak well with someone older, and so will they. They need to practice this, speaking in class, talking with their professors, etc. And perhaps most importantly, Franklin listens as old Mr. Bradford draws out of Mr. Keemer information that will be useful to his son as he competes with Keemer for business. Franklin is learning to be crafty, for which some now criticize him, but Franklin's craftiness is never dishonest. Franklin never cheats for anything, crafty as he may be. I'll skip ahead for one more example of Franklin perhaps being crafty, but in no way dishonest. Again, it's a well-known anecdote. Franklin by now has his own printing business and is looking to expand. I now opened a small stationer's shop. I had in it blanks of all sorts, the correctest that ever appeared among us. I was assisted in that by my friend Brightnall. I had also paper, parchment, Chapman's books, etc., one white mash, a compositor I had known in London, an excellent workman, now came to me and worked with me constantly and diligently, and I took an apprentice, the son of Aquila Rose. I now began gradually to pay off the debt I was under for the printing house. In order to secure my credit and character as a tradesman, I took care not only to be in reality industrious and frugal, but to avoid all appearances of the contrary. I dressed plain and was seen at no places of idle diversion. I never went out a-fishing or a-shooting. A book, indeed, sometimes debauched me from my work, but that was seldom snug and gave no scandal. And to show that I was not above my business, I sometimes brought home the paper I purchased at the stores through the streets on a wheelbarrow. Thus being esteemed an industrious, thriving young man and paying duly for what I bought, the merchants who imported stationery solicited my custom. Others proposed supplying me with books, and I went on swimmingly. In the meantime, Keemer's credit and business declining daily, he was at last forced to sell his printing house to satisfy his creditors. He went to Barbados and there lived some years in very poor circumstances. There is quite a bit of discussion now about what books should be part of the K-12 curriculum, which I think is good. Students in school today don't need to be limited to the books I read or that their parents read, whatever the grade. But not every book of an early generation needs to be thrown out, either. Franklin's autobiography had already been thrown out by the time I was a K-12 student back in the 50s and 60s. I'd like to see it come back. Our popular culture has plenty of models of how to get rich, athletes, pop music acts, CEOs, heirs, 
but little to instruct how to make it not into the 1%, but into the 10%. I had a student once who was a great guy, but was habitually late to class. We were bantering in class one day, and I asked him what he wanted to do when he finished college. He replied with all seriousness, as much seriousness as he could muster, that he wanted to become an assistant to Drake, the Canadian rapper, who was his favorite. I told him to remember that when there was work to be done, Drake can show up however late he wants because he's Drake. But when he does show up, you better be there looking sharp and ready to go. He was late to class the next day, but I still have hopes that someday that sunk in. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.